Oh, you're trying to get me to talk yeah. into the mic. So yeah, come. Do you just want me to talk right into the mic? Yeah, scoot your your seat, your stool towards me a little bit. We have a. Wait, the chairs. Yeah. So. Ah, that's what it was. Well, blame it on the chair leg. Yeah, let's. Oh, there oh, we you go. You want me to come that's closer? Perfect. Yeah, a little bit closer here. We're okay. gonna be friendly. We're gonna be friendly. We're gonna be cozy. Got it. Awesome. This is perfect. I think that looks cool. great. Awesome. Thank you. So, we can use headphones or no headphones. I don't want to give you headphone hair. So up to you. You know, some people like them because they, they look cool. Some people like them because they look cool. Some people don't. Okay. Uh, talk for a little bit. I'm going to ask you a little bit about your background. I'll do a quick intro for the podcast. Ask you about your background. Um, we'll talk a little about the role of a taxpayer advocate, how that differs nationally versus locally. I think that was a really good point you made this morning. Um, we won't use, I mean, we won't mention that we're in Tucson or anything like okay. that. Okay, so attended audience is probably state people if it's... Yep. Okay. yep, so we, what we do is we put this out. It's really our audiences, anybody who um, falls into the tax nerd category. Mm-hmm. So we get some practitioners listen. Uh, we get some, we get states, our, our members listen. We push this out in our newsletter, and we post it on our website. And we also distribute this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google. Oh, my God. Anywhere you can get a podcast. You can look up. It's All right. It's our. It's called Tax Breaks. So it's a, you know, a little cute nod and love letter to tax administration. So we've covered everything in the last... We started in July. Um, we've covered everything from AI to emotional intelligence to communications, project management. Um, I just uh, did an episode with Courtney talking about taxpayer experience. So I think we'll talk a little bit about that because I think... If we we intersect. You intersect and how does that... How does that work nationally? So, okay. All right. So we're just winging this. We're just winging it. You okay with that? Got it. Awesome. All right. Okay. Welcome to Tax Breaks, a podcast by the Federation of Tax Administrators, where each episode we sit down with an expert from the public sector, private sector, and academia to get their insights, their knowledge, and talk a little bit about a topic that relates to tax administration. So I'm your host, FTA's Chief Operating Officer, Ryan Minnick, and this episode I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, the official, the one, the only, the national taxpayer advocate, Aaron Collins. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I think some people may guess by the title, taxpayer advocate, uh, what you might do. But if you wouldn't mind, uh, just give a little bit of background about yourself, how you arrived in this role, and then what the office of the taxpayer advocate um, exists to do at the IRS. That was a lot of questions in one. I know, one, all, so all in one. I'll keep I'll, you on track, I I'll, I'll, I'll back up and start with the elevator speech of my history. So um, I'm one of the folks that went from law school directly into IRS. So I went into IRS chief counsel's office. So I was in the local office in Los Angeles. Um, I had both a local role and then over 15 years uh, I had a national role. Um, for those who are listening or watching, uh, back in the time when savings and loans went into receivership and went under, I was a national industry council for savings and loans, so my timing was great. Oh my gosh, um, that had been fun. It was an interesting time, but it introduced me to tax policy and you know, looking at things holistically, not just looking at the issue in front of you. So after 15 years, um, I went and sat on the other side of the table. So I represented taxpayers before the IRS uh, in controversy matters, including litigation. Um, for about 20 years with KPMG um, out on the West Coast. And then I retired. And you can tell that didn't last so long. So um, I was retired for about six months or so when the predecessor to my job, uh, Nina Olson, who was in the position, also retired. And so I got some phone calls. Hey, would you be interested? And fast forward three and a half years, here I am. Oh my goodness! So I jumped in. It's it's an amazing role. Yeah, what a, what an amazing background to be able to bring to that role too, having experienced kind of both sides of of the divide between you know, taxpayers being represented and then also 
handling matters in IRS right. counsel's office. And you know what? Was it bad changing the weather from LA to DC? I mean, so certainly. I'm still struggling with the weather, and I'm struggling with traveling. But uh, yeah, I'm used to it. But uh, as you said, I think the challenge you turn it into a positive in the sense of um, I, I think no matter what role you're in you do the same job it's just how do you spin it in the sense of you spin it a little bit more favorably towards the government or you spin it a little bit more favorably to the taxpayer but the job's the same what are the facts what are the law how do we come to an answer and how do you resolve an issue well, it's just sort of the perspective that you bring and even more special to be in a role where you can actually help take that clarity and then create some sort of process or some sort of right. kind of uh, you know effect that then makes future editions of that same question much easier to answer. So that's yeah. going to be no, and, and that's one of the things that I found fascinating about the job is you really have an opportunity to make a difference. And so, you know, sort of guilting myself after 35 plus, I stop at 35 years, um, I had the opportunity to give back and to help taxpayers and, and help tax administration um, with sort of the perspective that I had at the time. So. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's it's interesting about the job, and this is something that Congress created 20-plus years ago, was um, creating the organization, which is the Taxpayer Advocate Service, which is the organization I lead, um, to be more of an advocate rather than a doer. So we are IRS employees, but we don't have the same delegated authority. And Congress did that intentionally so that we could sort of be that voice of reason rather than just being seen as an IRS person. So it's an interesting role because inside the building, we help taxpayers with IRS challenges, but we can't per se fix them. We rely on our colleagues that we have to kind of reach across the aisle and convince them, advocate as to why it's the right answer for taxpayers. It sounds like a really reasonable check and balance to what is a, you know, what I imagine are a myriad of complex processes in a very large organization to be able to kind of have that kind of agency role within, within the organization and to then be seen Kind of, I, I imagine seeing both as internal and external advocates at the same time by, by your colleagues in other divisions. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a little bit different state to state. So a lot of states have the equivalent of a taxpayer advocate. Um, some of them are a little more, more towards the doers in the sense of they have the authority just to fix the problem, mm -hmm. and others do the advocate. We, we do both um, in the sense of we help try and get it done, and then we advocate as well, not only for the individuals, but for the system as a whole. And so, as you can imagine, during COVID, there were many challenges impacting millions and millions of people Absolutely. that we had the opportunity to be a voice at the table and to explain to the IRS what they needed to do to get things fixed. So we had a small part of trying to fix some of the problems. Well, and I think your, your role ended up being far more than small. I mean, I remember during that period of time, and I think a lot of folks, depending on the industry you're in, you know, it was definitely a, a big shift for everyone globally. However, in government in the U.S., at least what we noticed from a state perspective, this was really a time for public servants to shine. I mean, revenue and tax agencies at the state level were being tasked for the first time ever to administer programs to help provide assistance to citizens that were impacted. The IRS, for the first time, was contemplating all of these areas of efficiency and digitization in order to make sure that you know, a lot of these complex processes, which required in-office, at-desk human beings, could actually be done in a productive way without impacting taxpayer service. And I think for the most part, I know there's hiccups along the way in every every challenge, for the most part, I think any independent person looking at the tax and revenue world and the IRS and states would come away pretty impressed saying, wow, you dealt with a global pandemic, the wheels stayed on the bus, yep. 
uh, citizens were able to get funds and tax refunds and things that they needed, and and you made it out on the other side. And how cool, I mean, how cool was that? I imagine unexpected, because you had just started your role prior to the pandemic. I, I walked in March of 2020, so right when COVID was peaking, I had the honor of stepping into the chair, so um, timing is everything. But yeah, so having the role, watching it from the perspective of what was happening in COVID, because as you pointed out, you know, Congress um, provided many social benefits for individuals, uh, the stimulus payments, credits, other type of thing that the IRS had to quickly administer. So yeah, there were some bumps and there were some hiccups, um, but when you think about the percentage of what they were able to do, it was well in excess of 90 plus percent. Um, you know, my role, unfortunately, is to focus on not so good. Um, Congress wants us to focus on the problems. So it's, it's a difficult role in the sense of you don't want to always be negative. You do want to recognize sure. the IRS when they do well and appreciate the changes that they do make. But at the same time, part of my job is to kind of, what I nicely call, poke the bear. Um, so when the IRS is not necessarily doing things that they should for taxpayers, that we kind of nudge them a bit and put them, you know, in the direction of trying to fix things for taxpayers. How has it been building that relationship with the IRS as an organization? Because it's, it's a challenging position to be in. You, you, you know, kind of seen as an antagonist in some circumstances, and now you've had two IRS commissioners um, with both with very different backgrounds in that role. Has that changed your team's approach to the work that you do as uh, Commissioner Werfel's come into his role and started his work? Not not really. I mean, I so I grew up in a large family, and I perfect middle child, of course. Um, and I learned you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. And I think that's always been my professional uh, style as well. Is usually somewhere in between, two people can come to a resolution. And so I don't think pointing fingers and yelling and screaming and saying, IRS, you have to do this is always helpful because again, I don't have the authority, so I have to ask them to do it. Um, there are times I ask a little more firmly, but um, I need their buy-in. So I think one of the things that was helpful being on both sides of the aisle is having the ability to know what's important to the IRS sometimes is more tax policy principle, um, you know, sort of what's right and wrong, where taxpayers look at what's the impact to me? You know, what are the financial consequences? How's this going to impact my checkbook? How's this going to impact if it's a company? Don't put me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They have a different perspective. So how do you take what's important to them, what's important to IRS, and mirror the two so that it's a good business decision at the same time it's favorable to taxpayers? So it's going to be a good exercise arriving at that kind of reasonableness test. And, right. and of course, it sounds like your background has positioned you perfectly to kind of engineer that test in a way that, that creates a, a positive working relationship as opposed That's to... That's what I tell myself. Yeah, it sounds like it at least, so, you know, it's, it, it does. So you stepped into your role right before the pandemic or as the right. pandemic was coming to a peak. And now, of course, we, you know, the world's a little bit different today. We're back to, you know, sitting next to each other, uh, having conversations, going to conferences. How have you seen um, outreach change for your office as uh, the pandemic's kind of wound down as people have gotten back to offices, people are being more social again. Uh, how's that affecting your outreach efforts? So I guess part of the good news is Taz, prior to the pandemic, 
um, we were able to work remotely in the sense a lot of our people would go out to outreach, do other things outside the office. So they were used to being a little bit more flexible. Um, and when uh, COVID hit and we weren't doing the face-to-face, -face, we did a lot of Zoom events, um, whether they were small community events or larger events. So we kind of got in the habit of doing it. I'd like to see as a society, we get a little bit more back to the face-to-face. -face. But one of the things we have realized is a lot of the taxpayers, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, have no interest in coming into an IRS building. They just want you to fix the problem. So a lot of them are just as happy on the phone or Zoom or a team or whatever type of communication. Um, they don't want to rush in. They just want you to fix their problem. So we're trying to figure out what is the good mix between in-person versus virtual. Absolutely. Well, and you've got a big team to do it with, too, so I was surprised. Um, you, know, you presented recently at one of our conferences, which is the occasion why we can sit down and, and talk to each other. And you shared that you have 75 offices, I think it was 1,800 staff on your team. offices across the U.S. So by statute, we're required to have one in every office, or I'm sorry, every state. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, that's 50. Sure. Um, and some states, such as California and New York, the bigger states, we have multiple. We also have um, an office in Puerto Rico. Um, so we're, we're kind of spread across, and we have about 1,850-ish. I would like to hire some more people. Um, and as I always say, we're hiring, we're hiring, we're hiring, in case anyone's listening. Um, so I would like to build it up a little bit more so that we can serve more taxpayers. Awesome. So I guess let's pivot to talking a little bit about some of the kind of topics of the day and some of the initiatives that your office is really working on or focused on. You know, I, I know some of these may not sound as a huge surprise to listeners, but you know, what are the three or four biggest areas that are of major focus for your team right now in order to kind of see improvement and resolution? So one of the things I think is overreaching is the Bill of Rights, so the taxpayer rights. Um, so I think everything that we do within the building, we're always thinking, um, how does this impact the Bill of Rights, the right to be informed, right to finality, right to representation. So when we look at an issue, it's sort of that's always in the back of our mind. Um, the biggest challenge I think we saw during COVID had to do with processing. Sure. I mean, anyone who read a newspaper or experienced it, talked to clients, taxpayers, um, the refunds was a big challenge. Working the paper was a challenge. Uh, so that's been a real issue. And so we've been very involved in providing information and advice to the IRS. Since taxpayers come to us with problems, we're able then to take that information and kind of walk the IRS to this is what we're seeing and there's a pattern and so therefore there's probably a systemic issue that we need to change so I think in the last three years we've been pretty instrumental in pointing you know issues out and hopefully also making you know solutions and recommendations so the last episode of the podcast I was talking with Courtney K. Decker Deputy mm -hmm. Chief Taxpayer Experience Officer and there's you know a very obvious um, intersection between we the work have a lot of your of synergies. Team. And, and so could you talk a little about that relationship with that office and, and how you all work together, especially in the face of the IRS's kind of looming and ongoing modernization efforts? Yeah, I mean, just think about anytime there's a challenge. Um, what Courtney's shop or the Taxpayer Experience Office is really focusing on is the word experience. How does this impact them? So when you think about rights and experience, they pretty much overlap. So there's a lot of things that she does uh, in her shop that we are kind of doing in ours as well. So we work a lot together. So when there's issues that come up, so for example, one of the issues that impacted a lot of the states and a lot of the taxpayers was when there was COVID relief. Mm -hmm. um, the question came up from the states is, is it taxable or not, depending on what state you're in and how the process was, 
was involved, uh, Courtney and I were both very involved with the IRS kind of poking the bear to say, get guidance out and make it specific so that each taxpayer understands, depending on what state they're located and what payment they receive, is it taxable or not. So those are things that we kind of team up with each other mm -hmm. and try and help. Um, one of the things that I'm a big believer that the IRS needs to do is simplify and get out clear guidance uh, in plain language. Um, and I know that's an issue that she's focusing in on as well as how do we explain to taxpayers what the issue is? I know this will shock people, but normal taxpayers don't read irs.gov and are not reading press releases. So how do we get them the information that they need to be compliant um, so that they don't have challenges with the IRS? Absolutely. Now, we talk about it uh, plain language all the time in state government. My favorite example, Courtney, I even talked about it, was you know, the traditional government language for a refund check is a warrant. Mm -hmm. The last thing anybody wants to see is a note from the IRS saying there's a warrant coming for you. Right. Um, when everybody should really be excited about that. That's a, that's a good thing. Uh, but it's, it's definitely a case of plain language accessibility. And I guess to that end, I know taxpayer experience has been focused on kind of marshalling the resources from the IRS to improve the digital experience yep. in order to, you know, whether it be portals, authentication, identity proofing, in order to make sure that you know, taxpayers can get to their information and can, you know, kind of bypass and circumvent the need to call in and occupy customer service time. So when those projects are, are ongoing, does the IRS kind of consult with your team on strategies in order to help make that um, as effective as possible? So we try and put our nose under each tent. <laughs> um, so uh, again, coming from the outside into the IRS, one of the things that I got when I arrived was a couple things. How do you communicate with the IRS? Uh, and again, no disrespect to IRS employees, but they don't want to talk to them. So what better ways can we communicate, whether it's email or some sort of secure sure. messaging or online accounts? So I am a big believer and have been pushing online accounts since I arrived because as a practitioner, in order to help your taxpayer, you just need the information. Um, there are times you actually have to talk to an IRS agent because you need uh, more assistance, but most of the time you need the data. And so if the IRS can build up a, what I call the robust online account, um, a lot of people can self-serve. And then at the same time, while we're building that up, that should free up those folks on the phone to help the ones who don't want to self-serve or are not capable of self-serving. You know, small businesses, individuals that live in rural communities, they, they probably don't want to go in and self-serve. They just want to pick up the phone and ask for assistance. So if we can free up the telephones by people self-serving and get them in a world that they're comfortable with, that should then free up those resources for those that wanted other choices. That's a fantastic idea of meeting people where they are, yes. where their expertise is, you know, balancing that with security, of course. And, you know, I know that, um, you know, one of the things we all enjoy as tax administrators is a very high level of trust when it comes to data. I mean, not everybody looks favorably at, at tax and tax administrators, but I do believe that most people, when they click submit on their tax return, whether it's corporate business, sales and use, whatever it may be. Hopefully they don't think about it, they just hit the button. Yep, they do. And, and so from a kind of trust and data security standpoint, is that something that you all also kind of keep an eye on in terms of the planned projects that, that go into effect, just to make sure that the IRS is being good stewards of, of taxpayer data? So we do talk a lot about security. Um, we do talk a lot about IT. I, I am a big believer that if we can fix our IT, a lot of the IRS problems will go away. So I, I am fairly vocal, in a nice way, of course, of course. Um, with respect to IRS challenges. Um, you know, their systems, you know, it's been said many times, are older than, you know, we, we put people on the moon um, after our, our IT was developed. So 
that's a long time ago. Um, so we really need to get that updated. So currently with the additional funds, that is one of the first things the IRS is trying to do is get their systems into the 21st century, Absolutely. which I think will make a huge difference. Well, and we've really appreciated the dialogue and the ongoing relationship with your office, with Courtney's office, with really all the divisions of the IRS because, you know, my, my pitch is always, and FTA's belief, you know, states are kind of laboratories of innovation. They operate at a slightly different scale. Uh, you know, most states uh, employ anywhere from, on the small scale, a couple hundred tax administrators to a couple thousand. And then you look at that in contrast, the IRS with a hundred thousand plus organization. And so a lot of those experiments have, have been done and it's actually really quite fun to collaborate with the expanded, your IRS colleagues and, and their team. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate the opportunity to share the things we've learned in order to hopefully help that. Because yeah, it's gotta be, gotta be challenging when you're working on a mainframe that was, uh, that, that was, old. Designed, yeah, designed during the Kennedy administration. Well, and I do think the states can learn from the IRS, but the IRS can learn from the states. And I do think it's another symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. Um, you know, we need each other. A lot of the states, as you well know, um, their income tax system follows the federal. So we should be helping the states understand what the federal is so they can better administer the state. So I, I do see that, you know, the Royal We IRS need to do a better job working with the states. It's music to my ears. It's one of the reasons we love uh, our ongoing dialogue with your team, with all the groups in the IRS, the commissioner's office. It's, I think there's a really good opportunity for everybody to work together because at the end of the day, we're serving the same taxpayers. Yep. And so, and most taxpayers don't know the difference between their state revenue agency and the IRS. So oftentimes we get each other's phone calls even. So we're, yeah, you know, we, you, gotta, you gotta be close family to get each other's phone calls. Yeah, and, we, and I think during the pandemic, um, one of the challenges that people had was just getting anyone to answer the phone. Absolutely. And you know, good or bad, our phones were available. So we got a lot of phone calls and there were many times that we would reach out to our state equivalent because either they were calling us trying to get the state or they were calling the states trying to get a hold of us. So, um, you know, I think we started developing more relationships during COVID because of that. Absolutely. And I guess on the topic of phone calls, I know the commissioner has been recently, you know, touting a lot of the improvements made in the call centers and call answer times and volumes. Have you all seen the kind of downstream effect of that with the taxpayers you engage with and the practitioners? Are they are they seeing that positive impact of those changes? Yeah, so the, the, the major change was the, what I would say, the key 1040 line, which most taxpayers call in on. What I think their goal is for this year is the practitioner line, which is not at the 85% level. So we need to increase that one and make that better. But yeah, and I think the challenge we had is, is for TAS is we got the downstream consequences of IRS challenges. So the more problems the IRS had, the higher our inventory and the demand for our services was. So I am happy to report that the IRS is getting better, which means our inventory is coming down a bit and getting a little bit more reasonable. It's not where it needs to be. Um, which I think is an indication of what taxpayers are experiencing. So when you think about the numbers, two years ago, I believe the um, IRS normally gets 80 to 100,000 calls per year historically. Um, and in 21, they received 282 million calls. That's what, three times the amount. Mm -hmm. Last year was 172 million. This year it was higher, mid 90. So you can see it slowly coming down. And to me, that's an indication that the IRS is doing better because fewer people are calling in. And even when you look at the website, how many times they click on, mm -hmm. it is also dropping considerably. So to me, that's a message that taxpayers aren't as frustrated and aren't as you know, worried because I think a lot of people were like, where's my refund, where's my refund, kept going back in and going back in. So the fact that that traffic is down, to me, tells me the taxpayers are 
a little bit happier. They're probably Absolutely. not really happy, but um, their experience is not as frustrating as it has been the last three years. Yeah, a good measure of confidence and trust because yeah. they, they no longer need to hit that button as frequently or maybe they're getting their questions answered or things are more clear on the front end. That's fantastic. I, some of those stats are, are actually somewhat new to me, so that's, that's really um, impressive to see that downward trend, especially when I know on the state side, at least the volume of, you know, whether it be taxpayers, new returns, uh, everything's, of course, volumes are always increasing. Uh, well, the returns are going up. The question yeah. is, are problems going exactly. up? Exactly, yes. So See hopefully that. the returns go up and the problems go down. Yeah, that's that's is, the goal. Yeah, doubly, doubly impressive that's to be right. able to manage both. So what's next on the, the radar for your team? What's your, your new priority? Or is there any new initiatives you have going on that you want to talk about? So good news is um, the IRS is more money. And as a result, there's major initiatives that they're taking place. And a lot of the initiatives, when you, you read, they have something they call the strategic operation plan. And if you sit down and look at it, a lot of that is what TAS has been recommending for the last decade. So not, not any disrespect to the SOP, um, a lot of it's just basic common sense. Like we have to improve our telephones. We have to improve our correspondence. We have to have plain language. We have to have better tools. Um, and so uh, we, TAS, are involved in a lot of those initiative projects. So I have my people spread out, um, and we have the opportunity to work with the IRS and give them our two cents and thoughts as to, based on our experience, and also we maybe look at things a little bit differently and bringing that to the table to try and work with the IRS to get these things resolved. So again, I say baby steps, because every day I do see something good happening. Um, you know, awesome. at the end of the day, it's like building a wall. You know, you put one brick and then another brick, and, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you have a wall. So I look at what IRS is doing is building those bricks so that one day you're going to step back and go, wow, things have changed considerably. Absolutely. And I think that's a great recommendation if people haven't gone out and looked at it before. I, I've read it. This was your operating plan. It's, it's voluminous and, it and is. quite comprehensive. But, you know, as, a, as an operations person, as, as, you know, I, I find it you know, clear and, and actually quite helpful to understand where the IRS is heading. Yeah, I think um, the challenge we're having now as an agency is really prioritizing it because there's a lot in that plan. And so you, a lot of times what we're doing, especially on the IT side, we're, we're leveraging the same people. Absolutely. So we got to figure out what's, what's the most important and where's the biggest bang for the buck and how do we move quickly. So um, I think a lot of people assume, and I think I'm, I'm right there because I'm a little impatient, why can't we just have everything fixed tomorrow? Um, but we do have to prioritize to figure out what's the most important, how do we do this, and do it in a methodical way so that we don't you know, misuse the funds that we've been entrusted with. No, I think that's a very similar conversation we have with state agencies all over the country. It's the same challenge. It's lack of people and lack of human resource and technology resource. And then the resource you have, you, you have a finite capacity and you have to fill it in the most optimal way. And I think if, if we all knew exactly how that optimization formula lo would look, you know, we would probably uh, right. be making a lot of money somewhere. So we're all trying but to... But it is helpful when Congress gives you a larger chunk of change. Absolutely. So, um, we, uh, that has been a huge, huge help for the IRS. We were and very more excited importantly, to see that. for taxpayers. Oh, of course. Because at the end of the day, we're stewards for taxpayers. And really, you know, how do we improve their experience? How do we help compliance? How do we help them be compliant? And so those additional funds will go a long way. I think that we were very excited to see those additional funds um, go out. And in fact, I think one of the first conversations we had had with one of the IRS teams was um, the, the relief that they felt and that they were finally going to be given some resource that they could 
actually start to move some of these projects initiatives forward. So as opposed to you know, continuing to repair what was there, they can actually think about doing something new. And that has to be incredible for morale across the organization as well. I mean, even simple things. Um, in Taz, we have had the same case management system, I want to say since inception, so 20 plus years ago. Oh my gosh. And it is a dinosaur. And when you think about the amount of time our folks waste dealing with a subpar system, uh, it's difficult for management to use the system. So we're talking about getting a new, just a simple little thing like a new case management system, but it could be a huge difference because we're trying to add the bells and whistles. So for example, instead of having someone be able to, required to call into our office, wouldn't it be really cool? They could go online and say, what's the status of my case? And it would answer the question for them. And so they wouldn't have to have you know that one-on-one -on, -one on a regular basis. And again, that frees up our case advocates to have the difficult or the good conversations with taxpayers when it's needed. But if you want to know, did the IRS get your refund issued on a particular day, you could just go look it up. So you know these simple things, which do cost money to build, um, would make a huge difference to taxpayers. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to seeing progress in this area. I look forward to checking in with you from time to time to hear how things are going. You know, for those who are listening or watching, you know, what's the best way to kind of get to resources from your team to get in touch with their local taxpayer advocate? How where, where do they start? So people are experiencing problems. Um, we have sort of a section within the IRS uh, uh, website. So it's hence our name, taxpayeradvocate at irs.gov. Very creative. Um, and if you go on there, there's a section um, that we have. Do you qualify for assistance? Um, how to contact an IRS person or a TAS person? And it breaks down by the country. Uh, so if you're in a certain city or a certain state, it'll pull up who your local taxpayer advocate is. Has their address, their phone number, their email address, their fax number. So it has all the information that you need. So if you want to reach out to one of your local folks, um, you can reach out, um, you know, and they can assist you in a particular manner. That's an incredible level of transparency for a large government organization. I think people should applaud the fact that your team is as accessible as they are. Well, that's the goal. Um, we're here to help taxpayers. So if they can't find us, we can't help them. So, And then one of the other things, so um, a friend of mine um, taught me long ago that when you point one finger forward, three are pointing back. And so I use that all the time within TAS. When we criticize the IRS about or make a recommendation that they should do X, well, what are we doing? So one of the things that we've focused on since I arrived was, for example, if you have an IRS notice. Well, a lot of times they don't even give the agent's name, they just have a generic 800 number. So I would like to have who to contact, the person, and their manager, and a phone number. And so I've been talking about this, and then I came back to my own organization and said, well, what are we doing? And we weren't doing. So we now have on our letters the, the local person who has assigned the case, but also their manager and the manager's phone number. So that if you do have a problem, you do have a challenge, there is somebody to go to. So you have to practice what you preach. And so when I ask the IRS to do something, we darn well better be doing it in TAS. Oh my gosh, well it sounds like your organization is in very good hands. I'm very glad to hear about your relationship with the IRS. I learned quite a bit with our conversation today. I hope everybody listening did as well and look forward to seeing you at future FTA conferences and maybe uh, catch up from time to time to hear how things are going with your initiatives. And I appreciate it and thank you so much for having me. Of course, thanks Erin. Thanks. That's it. All right, how painful was that? That was beautiful. Oh, it was beautiful. It was good stuff. Joe is uh He's not biased. He, <sighs> Joe has no problem telling me um, when things are awful, which is a good thing. Well, I like. no, it's just there was no... So this is a green 